I want you to think about if you have ever had to play a game with somebody who changed the rules during the game to favor them. Have you ever played with somebody like that? You're in the middle of the game, and then all of a sudden they say, wait a minute, you know, you, you can't get out of jail free unless you are the horse character or the car character. Or, you know, no, that doesn't apply to you. You have to have the same colored cards if you're going to, to be able to do that. You know people like that? You have people like that? Have you ever played with anybody a game that continually moved what it meant to win? Continue to move the goalpost, if you will. You know, it was, uh, oh, no, no, we're not playing to 20. We're playing to 25. Or, or, oh, no, now you have to win by two. Or now you have to win by four. Now you have to win by five. When you get in a game with people like that, it is so incredibly frustrating. It's frustrating to the point of ridiculousness because there's no guidelines. There's no set rules. You don't know how you're supposed to act. You don't know how you're supposed to win. And I think of that when I think about how I feel in trying to understand today's culture in America and trying to understand and keep up with the ever-shifting moral standards that seem to change according to what is acceptable one day and what is not acceptable the next. In America, 30 years ago, behavior or actions or, or activities that we considered immoral or wrong or unacceptable, all of a sudden, 20 years ago, became acceptable. And then 10 years ago, became celebrated. And now, not only is it celebrated, but we're expected to all approve. Unless, of course, someone from a political party that is not your political party happens to do that behavior, then all of a sudden, it is now unacceptable again. Now I've told you before, I believe in the church, uh, we don't talk politics because this should be a refuge from all of that junk. This should be a place that we come and instead of being bombarded as we are out in the world of all the ways that we are divided, we come here to talk about how we're united. So I'm not talking politics, I'm talking about a culture and inside this room, I understand we have Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Independents and people that fall on every end of the political spectrum. Maybe you're even a part of my political party, which is throw all of them out and start over. So I don't know where you fall. But I know in the past, historically, Christians in my grandparents' day, they linked the, the church up with the Democratic Party because they believed that the Democratic Party was, was the one who was going to save America. And then it slowly transitioned as the moral majority came along and, and, and during the time of Reagan, all of a sudden, then Republicans hitched their wagon to the church and the church hitched their wagon to the Republican Party. See, what I'm wanting to talk about this morning is not politics. It's helping us to understand that Jesus Christ was not and is not a Democrat or Republican. Because Jesus didn't come to take sides. He didn't come join a party. Jesus came to take over. And the problems that you and I are facing in America today are not political. The problems that our nation faces are cultural and spiritual. And our hope and our trust for answers for our nation will never be found in a politician. It will never be found in a political party. It's only going to be found in Jesus Christ. And I think we find ourselves in a place of trouble when those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ are willing to compromise or rationalize or remain silent when people in any political party 
act immoral, deceitful, or just plain stupid, and we remain silent because they're a part of our party. We need to get back to the place in America where immoral behavior or deceitful behavior is wrong and unacceptable, irregardless of whether or not your name has an R behind it or a D behind it. See, I'm afraid the church and Christians are finding themselves on thin ice, on dangerous ground when, when we become so quick to show righteous indignation when somebody from the opposite political party happens to do something or is accused of doing something immoral or deceitful, yet when someone from our party does something that's very similar, we either remain silent or we compromise or we rationalize. It's dangerous ground, it's thin ice, not just because of the hypocrisy, but we come very close to compromising our values, compromising our standards, and even compromising our witness over politics and politicians. And when we do that, we get very close to revealing who we really have put our hope and trust in. Psalms 146.3 says, warns, do not put your trust in princes or leaders. Do not put your trust in mere mortals. They cannot save you. We live in a culture today where there is no longer a true distinction between what is right and wrong. No longer absolute truth. There is no longer the idea that you can say that something is completely wrong or something is completely right because it is always shifting. It's always changing. And it's changing on a slippery slope. And the irony of that is historians, when they look back on people groups throughout history, use that to define what makes people civilized. One of the ways that historians and sociologists determine whether or not a group of people actually was a civilization is do they have objective rights and wrong? Do they understand and have a guideline for determining what is right and what is wrong? So by that definition today, America would be an uncivilized nation, not just an immoral nation. And politically, I have to tell you, before I move into this passage, that we are doing nothing more than reaping what we have sown in this nation. When we decided as a people that character and integrity, when we decided as a people that what people do on stage and do in private don't have to match, that's integrity, we began to walk down a slippery slope of danger that leads us to where we are today. When we decide the point that what somebody says and how they act doesn't matter as long as they support what I support or as long as they are part of my party or if they will vote the way I want or if they will give me what I want, we are in dangerous ground because now we're not arguing in politics over integrity and character anymore. We don't even argue about if politicians lie. We expect them to lie. What we worry about today is asking ourselves, how much am I willing to compromise? How much am I willing to accept? How much am I willing to rationalize when I have to hold my nose and pull the lever? I just want you to understand, we no longer get the candidates we need. We get the candidates we deserve today. Now, I I believe and I know that there are some godly leaders in this nation. There are some men and women who believe in godly principles and are, are trying to do the right thing who are trying to put what is best for our nation first. But they are the exception and not the rule. And those people are swimming upstream against a raging current. And you and I as a church need to support them and pray for them, regardless of the political party. But to call the place where those people are a swamp is doing a disservice to the swamp. Now that's not just a pastoral political rant to make all of you mad at me. 
I say all of that because it directly relates to our passage this morning. Because what is happening in our culture is not their fault. It's not the politicians' fault. It's not those that are outside of these walls' fault. It falls at the feet of the church because we have remained silent and we have compromised and we have rationalized for too long. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. And I want to encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we all need to constantly examine our hearts and ask ourselves, are we putting too much faith in men and women and parties over Jesus Christ? Because the hope of this nation is not a party. It's Christ and Christ alone. And we come dangerously close to missing that. Now in Romans chapter 12, if you've been with us, Paul's discussing relationships. He is talking about all the relationships that we have in our lives. Our relationship to God, our relationship to the church, and our relationship to people outside of the church. For the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about how we live the life that Jesus has called us to, to people outside of the church. And Paul started back in verse 14 of this by labeling a very specific group. Those people who persecute us. Those people who are mean to us. And now in verse 17 where we are today, he moves outside of a specific group to talk about generalities. He is telling us this is how we are supposed to live in a world that is not Christian. How are we supposed to live at work? How are we supposed to live at, at play? And things that we do in and out of our day to have an influence, to have an impact on the outside world. And when you read this verse, I promise you, you are going to just skip by it in understanding what Paul is really saying because it gets missed so many times because we lump verse 17 in all the way to verse 21 and we kind of rush by it. But there are some key principles that give us an idea of what can change the culture in America. There are some key principles here that help us understand that you and I are called to do something different than we might possibly be doing. Now he transitions in the first part of verse 17 by reminding us again of something he's just taught us. And that's the way Paul teaches all the time. And, and I told you these are perinesis, short little quick statements that he makes. We would call them axioms or maxims that, that just roll off without a whole lot of explanation. But his listeners would understand them. And he starts verse 17 with kind of a reverse take on the golden rule. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so in a reverse take, what he says is, do not repay evil for evil. See, he's reminding us what he just told us back in verse 14, 15, and 16, is that you and I as Christ followers are not in the revenge business. We're not in the retaliation business. We are not in the business of trying to pay back people for what they've done to us. And he's going to remind us again in verse 19 and 20 and 21 of the same thing. So it must be a big deal. What he's trying to help us understand is that as peacemakers, our job's not revenge. Our job's not retaliation. Our job is reconciliation. Our job is redemption. Our job outside of these walls is not to try to get payback or to get revenge. Our job is so that people can see what reconciliation and redemption looks like. What is redemption? It is taking something that has no value and giving it value. Because there are a lot of people outside of these walls that think that their life doesn't matter. There are a lot of people that you encounter on a daily basis who think their life has no value. They have no purpose. They have no reason to live. And you may be the only point of redemption or hope or purpose that they will ever encounter. And so he's trying to keep us focused. Stop worrying. Because we, 
we allow so much of our time, effort, and energy to be consumed on getting people back, don't we? So much of our thoughts on, on how am I going to get them back. That's repaying evil for evil. He says, don't repay evil for evil. And then he builds on it with where we're going to focus for a few minutes this morning. The second part of that passage, this is where I want to focus. He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. That doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now, this is one of those times where I've told you that the English language falls very short of expressing what was written in the Greek because the English language is not as inclusive as the Greek language. So sometimes our translations and our translators don't express all that he was trying to say in a verse. And this is one of those times. See, when you read it just... First hand, your first glance, especially here in the NIV, it makes it sound like the goal of our lives is to live our life according to what everyone thinks is right. Doesn't sounds like that, doesn't it? What is right in the eyes of everyone. But I just told you that that's impossible because today in America, what is right keeps changing. And so how are we supposed to live our lives according to what is right, according to a changing standard? I'm afraid a lot of Christians fall into this trap for their lifestyles and for their behavior. We look at where the world sets the bar and we decide that we are going to set our bar for our behavior or how we live just a little higher than the world because that makes us feel like we are overcoming the world, right? We are doing better than the world. And then what happens as the world continues to lower the bar of what is acceptable, we lower it just a little as long as we're ahead of the world. That's not what we're called to. That's not what he's trying to say here. There are two words that are very important that we do not understand the meaning in English that they are trying to get in Greek. The, the first is the last couple of words where he says, in the eyes of everyone. Or some of your translations in the King James, it may say, in the sight of all men. The New Living Bible has it a little better translation. The Living Bible says, so that everyone can see. The word there for eyes of all men or eyes of everyone doesn't just mean eyes or sight. What it, he's trying to explain is saying is that people are watching you. We put it in today's vernacular. We could say, everyone is watching you, so do what is right. He's trying to remind us that you and I, whether we like it or not, when we identify as Christians, when we decide that we are going to be Christ followers in this world, people are going to pay attention to you. People are going to watch you. People are going to observe you. People are going to pay attention to what you say and what you do. Even when you don't think they are, they're watching you. And what he helps us understand by saying be careful to do what is right or honest because the world is watching is he wants to remind us that for some people in our lives you are the definition of Christianity. Now I know today in the South, in the Bible Belt, we don't think there are anyone out there even around us that don't know something about Christianity. A couple of years ago here in our church we had a college student that brought another college student that grew up in the South. He was from Georgia. And he came to church with his friend that was a part of our church on Easter. And I told you the story because when we were shaking hands and I was meeting him as he went out the door, he said, this 19-year-old boy, I had no idea that Easter had anything to do with Christianity. And he grew up in the South. 
We, we had our trunk or treat a couple of weeks ago and, and it would have looked like a disaster because it rained and it was foggy and it was horrible and we had to take all the trunks that we had planned out there and move them inside and, and we thought this is nobody's going to be out. But incredibly, we had more people than we've ever had inside the church for that kind of event because they had to cancel the monster march downtown. So all the people from the area that drove all the way over here to go to the monster march in downtown Bowling Rock, those people there said, we are not doing it. Go to First Baptist Bowling Rock. So I stood at the back door and greeted people that many of them had never been in a church before and watched them walk in and look around. And so I came in here and I turned the lights on because I wanted them to be able to look in here. And I stood over here and I, came, I was greeting. Some of you saw me greeting people as they came in. And I saw one couple later on that were looking inside the window. And I opened the door and I said, you want to come in? And they came in and the man who was my age with little children said, this is the first time I have ever been in a church. You and I need to recognize is our culture is changing. It's not the old way it used to be. And for many people that you work around and you go to school with and that you interact on the ball fields, you and your actions define Christianity to them. And what Paul is trying to remind us, what he's trying to warn us, he's not trying to put pressure on you. He's not trying to tell you to go out and put up on some spiritual act and pretend to be something that you're not. What he is wanting to remind us is that we need to be aware that every day, all the time, the people we encounter are looking at us to see Jesus. You know the old cliche, you may be the only Jesus some people ever see. That's exactly what Paul wants you to understand. I used to tell my college students when I was a college minister, your behavior probably won't send you to hell because you're a Christian. But it might help your buddy get there because he's watching you. We need to be aware that people are watching us. What are they watching? What are they looking for? Paul says they're watching to see if we will do what is right. If we will do what is honest. But then again, this word that he uses for right, that the King James translates as honest, is one of those words where we really don't have enough in the English language to encapsulate. It's, it's an incredible word. It's the Greek word kalo. And kalo has varied definitions, and it's used eight different times in New Testament. Eight different ways. You see, it has so varied of a definition that you cannot understand what the context it is being used at until you look at the whole sentence, what he's talking about. Because it's used eight different ways. Eight different words just in the New Testament. When you wanted to look for a definition of kalos, it's defined as good, right, honest, fitting, honorable, honest, precious, and beautiful. Now there's a big difference between beautiful and honest, isn't there? So the King James gets it right when it says honest, and we can say the NIV gets it right when it says do the right thing. But what does he mean by that? Greek culture, this word kalos was very different. This word kalos was one of the favorite words of the Greek philosophers, especially Plato. But Aristotle uses it. And when they used it, especially Plato, he used it to explain what he called the ultimate Good. Plato's philosophy, the word kalos, meant the pursuit of the ultimate. And when he used it, what he said was, it, it is it's describing the pursuit of the ultimate, depending on the structure of the sentence. If you were talking about aesthetics, then kalos meant the ultimate beauty. 
If you were talking about philosophy, then kalos meant the highest truth. If you were talking about morality, then kalos means the ultimate right, to do the most right that you can. If you were talking about your character, then it was defined as honorable. But they would understand it. And the people that you realize, he wrote this letter to Rome, who were engrossed in a Greek culture and understood the Greek language, that knew the philosophers. And so what they heard, when they heard, be careful to always do what is right, because people are watching, is they heard Paul saying, be careful, you need to set the standards that you live by at the highest level. saying is is that our standard for behavior and activities and actions and thoughts always need to be the best. Always need to be pursuing the highest that we can get to. It's not about trying to find where the world is and being a little better than the world. It it is something that is, is the best. And whatever we do, wherever we go, it is implying that we do what is right to the most. But by... Telling us that, Paul is implying something that many people miss. He is implying that there is an ultimate truth. That there is an ultimate right. There is an ultimate beauty. There is an ultimate honor. There is an ultimate honesty. That that is not changeable. It is objective. It is definable. For for us to pursue it, it has to be something you can say, this is what it means. And that runs counter to where we are in the world because he is telling us that it doesn't change over time. It doesn't change because you want to read a different interpretation. It doesn't change according to your feelings or what mood you are in or the circumstances you are in. It is always the same because this higher standard, this bar for our life wasn't set by man. It's set and it's established. Now you know as Christians... We believe the Bible is God's holy word. We believe that this is our source of authority. And we believe it holds absolute truth. That there is truth in this word. And part of that truth is what is right and what is wrong. And it's unchangeable. We don't get to change it if we don't like it. We don't get to change it if we don't agree with it. We don't get to change it if it doesn't make us comfortable. Why? Because those unchangeable truths of what's right and what's wrong are anchored in the very nature of God. What makes these things right and wrong, what makes them objective, is they are part of God's character. And we don't just receive that from His Word. You and I, when we become Christians, we receive a part of that nature. When you accepted Jesus Christ, you were given a token, a part of the nature of God in the Holy Spirit. And that nature of God lives inside of you. And part of that nature is that there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong and it doesn't change. And it is in that nature, in that truth, that God convicts us to pursue the ultimate standard. You see, the bar standard we live in is not based on popularity or majority vote. It's based on God's Word and the Holy Spirit. Paul's telling us that as we live out the implications of the gospel, it will always draw us to a higher standard. And that that needs to be true in every area of our life. think too many times Christians compartmentalize. That's what gets us in trouble politically. It's what gets us in trouble in our workplace. Because we say, well, I want to I live up to a higher standard when I'm in church on Sunday. I want to live up to a higher standard when I'm around other Christians. I'm going to live up to a higher standard in my small group. And I'm going to live up to a higher standard here. But then when we go home, we lower the bar back down. 
Or when we're at work, we lower the, I'm still going to be better than those people, but I'm not going to try to live up to this highest standard because, because people may make fun of me. People may not like me. People may turn away from me. If, I, if I'm setting the standard up here and I'm pursuing, and I'm not talking about casting judgment on anybody or trying to be holier than thou. I'm just call, saying we need to call ourselves to a higher standard, to a higher bar, and hold ourselves to it. And you can't block it off and say, I'm going to do it here, but I'm not going to do it here, and I'm going to do it in this situation, and I'm not going to do it in this situation. Because either Jesus Christ changed all of us or he didn't change any of us. Either we're a new creation or we're not. You can't get just a little Jesus. You can't get just a little Holy Spirit. Either he's in charge or he's not. We don't set the standard. It's already been set. Now let me go back to my earlier rant. In America today, we live in a culture where right and wrong is based on moral relativism. And what moral relativism is, is it decides that our morals, and what are morals? Morals are those behaviors that we define as right or wrong. Moral relativism says that what is right or wrong is now subjective. It's not set. It's subjective and relative. What does it mean to be relative? It means it is based on the circumstance or the situation or the person or the culture. No longer, our morals in America are no longer, what is right and wrong in America is no longer held by the same ethical guideline and the same ethical standard that it had been for 200 years. Now we are at a place where what is right or wrong or what the majority of people might think what is right or wrong is decided by circumstance and situation and culture and our own opinions. And it is a slippery slope that we are sliding down. And it is engrossing Christians. And it is engrossing the church. Because what happens is instead of listening to the Holy Spirit, there is a way that seems right to man. And we see people living their lives however they want, according to however they feel. And what was wrong yesterday is now right because the circumstances change. And we compromise our witness and we compromise the power of the Holy Spirit in our life all because we don't understand that God is calling us to something more. Moral relativism tells us that there is no right or wrong. What was wrong or immoral or deceitful yesterday can be right today depending on the right circumstance and the right situation. See, it's no longer about getting the right answer. There is no wrong answer, right? Doesn't matter if it's wrong, it's right if you can explain to me how you got there. That's the culture we're in. That's what you and I face every day when we walk outside these walls. And for many people in America today, the only consistency, the only absolute in their moral standard is themselves. What I think, what I want. And it's not consistent because it can't be consistent. What does that mean? That means it might be wrong for you, but it's right for me because I'm different. And I come from a different background. And I have a different history. So don't judge me on my behavior because you don't understand where I've come from. But then all of a sudden that may change because I got a different job and my job is different now. And so now it's wrong again for me in spite of my background. That's how you turn on the news and you see some place like the state of California that has banned their colleges from traveling to, to states that they say are discriminatory. 
against LGBT people that, that have passed laws. And so they say, we're not going to allow our colleges to travel to those states. But yet they allow them to travel to the Middle East and they let them travel to China where that type of lifestyle is outlawed and those people can be put to death. And the way they justify it is they say, it's a different culture. We can't impose our beliefs on that culture. And we get by that, that rationalization and it changes over time. And if you don't have any moral standards, how are you ever going to have a moral society? It's shifting sand. And we are in danger. So what do you do? What's the church supposed to do? How do you respond to that? That's why this verse is so important. Because what Paul says here in verse 17 is the answer. The answer is not a different political party. The answer is not some politician or hoping that government is somehow going to legislate morality. That's, that's what got us where we are today. Doesn't mean we don't give up on government, but it means we can't sit around hoping that something else is going to change. It also means that you and I can't keep lowering our bar to the standard of the world's values. We can't keep saying, they're here so we can come down here and, and hold ourselves to that. And, and sadly, many in the church have thought that was the answer to be relevant. There are a lot of denominations and a lot of churches that have compromised what they believe, what they held true, what has been true for 2,000 years in the church. They began to compromise those values and standards so that they could be more relevant or so they could be more accepted. But the problem is when you begin to lower the bar as to not offend you spend so much time focusing on how close you can get without offending and still be separated that you lose sight of who is holding the bar in the first place. You don't set your own standards. You don't get to decide what is right and wrong. God set the standards. And, and let me just say this. God's standards are always going to be offensive, especially to somebody who doesn't have them. Especially to somebody whose standards shift. Especially to somebody whose who's right and wrong is always changing. To come and say, listen, God is calling us to something different is offensive to somebody like that. So some of you may be offended. Listen, I was offended by it before I had Jesus Christ, before my heart changed. It was probably offensive to you. And it's going to be offensive to the world. And God's standards are never going to be popular. They're just not. We can't keep thinking that if we, if we couch it in this language or if we do this, that somehow the world will all of a sudden change and start embracing the church again. People who don't have a changed heart are not going to embrace a standard that requires a changed heart. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try to be open and to be welcoming and to be uh, allowing anyone to understand that there is grace and mercy that is found here. But that can't include compromising what we believe and why we believe it. We can't lower our standards and lower our values with hope that we're not going to offend people because this is always offensive. Jesus said the cross is offensive. You might remember when the vice president said that he had a rule since he had been married that he wouldn't meet alone with another woman without his wife there. He got made fun of. He got mocked in the media. I just want to tell you, that's been my rule since I got married. Somebody counseling me said, you need to make this rule in your life that you are never alone with another woman that is not your wife. Now, that doesn't mean 
that my wife doesn't trust me doesn't mean that I'm irresistible to other women. I am, but that, that's not what I'm trying, it's not what I'm getting to, okay? It's not what I'm trying to say. Why is that a rule? It protects me. If I live by that standard, what that does is when somebody comes along and makes an accusation against me, there is no opportunity and no way for that accusation to ever take root because people will say that can't be true because he's never alone with another woman that's not his wife. It protects me. And let me tell you something. I believe today there are probably a lot of people that made fun of the vice president's standards that wish they had some of those standards now that all we're hearing about is the sexual harassment going on. Protects me. But people in the world were offended by it. They made it into something that it wasn't. Oh, he, he's trying to hold back women. He, he's trying to be discriminatory towards women. He's trying. No, he wasn't. What he was saying is, in my life and for me and my wife, this is a standard I set so that no one can accuse me of something that's never happened. See, right now, there are accusations flying around everywhere about everybody. And all it takes to destroy your reputation and your witness is one accusation. Because in America today, in the culture and the environment we're living in, you are guilty until proven innocent. Because the media will try you, the people in the community will try you, and that's going to be on page one of whatever newspaper where you live, and when they find out it wasn't true, that's on the back page on an off day. Paul's saying that the answer to changing the culture we live in is found in you and I living our lives in such a way that when people see us, when they're around us, they become aware that we are different, that there was a change that took place in my life. I didn't have anything to do with it. That when we are out, Paul's saying when you are out in the world, outside around non-Christians, the answer to changing our culture is not more rules or laws. The answer is for Christians to live their life as if there is a higher standard. And, and not that it is burdensome and not that it is hard, but that it is a joy because I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I'm different now and I can't help it. And when they begin to see how you live your life with joy and with happiness and with excitement, and they begin to see how God is protecting you and blessing you, they will be drawn to it. You see, he says the answer is here. Live at the highest standard because everyone is watching you. Not trying to follow some religious rules or to look and act spiritual. You know what that standard is? It's simple. It's very easy, and I'm closing with this. What is that higher standard that he is calling you and I to? First of all, it's what he said back in verse 1. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God, because that is your spiritual act of service. What does that mean? That means let the Holy Spirit have every part of you. How do you want to be different? It's not about you wearing new clothes or talking differently or putting a bumper sticker on your car or smiling all the time. It's about saying yes to the Holy Spirit and saying you can have all of it. You can have my work. You can have my marriage. You can have the way I raise my kids. You can have the way I treat my parents. You can have it all. Take it. And I'm going to be obedient to wherever you lead. And then the second thing, and this is even more simple to say and hard to do, the standard that Paul tells us is the ultimate standard is everything I think and do as a Christian, I ask myself, does this give glory to God? 
does this action glorify Jesus Christ? If what's about to come out of my mouth, does that glorify, does that reflect on Jesus Christ? Please, you understand that's the only reason you and I are still here? The only reason He doesn't take us to heaven the moment we accept Him is because He knows that there are people all around us that are watching. And He knows that if we ever set the bar and begin to pursue, and He's not going to tell us to do anything we can't do. You can't do it in your own power, but with the Holy Spirit's power, you can get there. It's not perfection. We'll never be perfect. It's direction. It's, I'm moving towards that higher standard, asking myself, does this glorify God? Does this glorify Jesus Christ? Are people going to see Jesus in this? Why? Because people are watching. He says, do what is right. Pursue what is right. That's the only hope for our nation. That's the only hope for our world. I'm going to close. I'm going to read a verse. The interpreters of the New Testament actually came close to explaining what this kalos means. What does it mean, this ultimate good? Well, when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he came close. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, finally, Christians, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is the ultimate, focus on those things. That is what it means to do right. Let's pray.